Well, good morning. It is certainly wonderful to be here this morning. It is a beautiful day outside. It's a day we can focus on God this morning. I pray as we dive into his word that we would focus on his word and glean from his word, focus on what it says this morning. We want to welcome any visitors that may be with us this morning. We'd ask that you would stick around with us after services, allow us to introduce ourselves and come enjoy a nice meal with us this morning. There there are those visiting with us this morning. I wouldn't necessarily call visitors, and it's, it's always great to see you all back. This morning, if you would, turn with me to the book of Genesis in chapter 2 this morning. Genesis chapter 2. We'll start in the 15th verse. Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 15. It says, And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him an helpmeet for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air, and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all the cattle and to the fowl of the air and every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found an helpmeet for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. What do you think of when I say the word manhood? What's the first thing that pops into your mind when I say the word manhood? Maybe we're we're thinking about the physical characteristics of a man, someone who's stronger, someone who has facial hair, someone with sometimes shorter hair, someone who's taller and so on. Maybe the first thing that comes to your mind is different characteristics, maybe courage, resilience, Someone who's not supposed to back down from a fight. Someone who's a leader. Or maybe we have a more negative picture of manhood. Maybe when I say manhood, you think of what society has termed toxic masculinity. Someone who's over-boisterous. Someone who's obnoxious, right? I want you to know this morning that we have been lied to as a social system. And we have been lied to as a society, and it has degraded every part and every sense of what a man should be, and what manhood should look like, and what manhood should act like. And so this morning will be the first part of a two-part sermon series focusing on biblical manhood and biblical womanhood, and what it looks like. And this morning we're going to focus specifically on the men. Society today, and not even society, but unfortunately in our own homes and in our own churches, we judge a man by what is called the three B's. We judge all of our basis on what a man looks like based on the ball field, the billfold, and the bedroom. 
the ball field, the billfold, and the bedroom. And you may be saying, well, hold on now, Ethan, we're deeper than that. I challenge you to look inside your own heart and see if we actually are. We judge a man by how much he works out, by how strong he is, by how athletic-looking he is. And it starts in school and unfortunately transfers all the way into adulthood as well. We start by wanting to be the best on the ball field, wanting to be the star athlete for the school, and then that translates into having the most muscles, lifting the most weights, doing the craziest marathons, and so on. And it's infiltrated our homes, and it's infiltrated our churches. You know, there's, there's jokes out there on TikTok and all the different social media platforms about the Christian boy being able to lift the most chairs at the potluck. It's a pretty funny joke, to be honest with you. But it's a symptom of a major society societal problem that we have. We judge a man by the ball field. We also judge a man by his billfold. We judge a man by how much money he makes, by the type of job that he has. We look at the police officers, the high-up lawyers, the CEOs, rich healthcare professionals, and we say, now that is a man. That's what manhood looks like, being the top dog, making the most amount of money. That's a man. One of the things we're going to look at here in a few minutes, one of the characteristics of biblical manhood is that a man is committed to God-honoring labor. But I want you to know this morning there is a firm difference between a man who is committed to God-honoring labor, a man who works because he's commanded to by God, a man who works to provide for his home, and a man who works to line his billfold, a man who works for his own personal gain. We also judge men by the bedroom. We say the the way to show manhood, especially in high school and in college, is how many women that we've been with. We judge manhood by social media posts, by how many women are in the photos. And those three Bs have led to an all-out societal breakdown as to what a man looks like and what a man acts like and what a man values. And it's vital to the future of the church. It's vital to the future of our homes, to the future of our children, to understand what God wants in a man. And what biblical manhood actually looks like. To understand the nature of a biblical man, a great place to start is in the garden. And talking from a theological perspective, God creates mankind in the image of the Godhead three. Let us make man in our own image. And God places mankind, specifically Adam, into the Garden of Eden. And if you weren't already aware, the Bible, at least 98, 99% of it, is an all-out restoration story. A story of salvation. A story of broken people, a sinful people in need of a Savior. And so, of course, 98, 99% of what we talk about from the pulpit and in our homes and in our personal studies speaks to the fallen man in need of being restored. The broken man in need of saving. And so we trace through these dispensations of the patriarchs the dispensation of Moses, and we trace through these periods until we get to the time of Christ and the Christian dispensation in which we're in now. But this morning, we're going to take a step back and we're going to talk heavily about a dispensation of time that isn't focused on God's plan for restoration because there is no one yet to restore. A time that doesn't speak to God's plan for salvation because there was no one needed in saving at that point. We're going to take a look at a time period prior to the fall. And then in that time period, there is no sin. The fall of mankind that's discussed in the book of Romans, that by one man sin entered the world, has not occurred yet. Man is without sin. Man is in a perfect, harmonious relationship with God. 
the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Adam is walking with God. The state of mankind, at least the created being man, is at the apex point of what God has envisioned manhood to be. Now, did God know that mankind would fall? Yes. Did God know that mankind was going to sin? Yes. But at this point, mankind is absolutely perfect. And the highest definition of biblical manhood outside of Jesus Christ is being achieved right here in the garden prior to the fall. Genesis 2 and 15 says, And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden to dress and to keep it. The Lord God took this man, he puts him in the garden, and he tells him to do what? He tells him to get to work. That's what this is. God tells the man to tend and to keep the garden. Now I want you to notice something again. This is prior to the fall. Now ask yourself a question. How do we as a society view work today? How do we as Christians view work today? A lot of people get this theological idea that work is a punishment from God because of the fall. Because of man's sin, we now have to work. Once again, prior to the fall, tend and keep the garden. A biblical man is committed to God-honoring labor. I want to read a passage with you out of the book of Proverbs to illustrate just how essential this idea is when it comes to biblical manhood. Proverbs chapter 6, starting in verse 6, says, Go to the ant, thou sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise, which having no guide, overseer, or ruler, provideth her meat in the summer and gathereth her food in the harvest. Man, I want us to focus on what Solomon's saying here. He says first to go to the ant. All that is is a figure of speech saying, look at the ant. Have you ever left food around your house? All of a sudden, ants are surrounding it, encapsulating that food. They somehow find their way to the food and start taking it back to their colony of ants, carrying several times their body weight to get it back to the ones who need it. That's the picture that Solomon's painting here. That's what he wants you to consider in your mind. And Solomon says, consider those ways and be wise. You sluggard, consider the lowly ant. That's the picture. You who are so lazy, you who are unwilling to work, you who are unwilling to provide for your own, look at the ant. Who has no overseer, has no ruler, no one telling them what to do, no moral force guiding them to make these decisions, still knows in their heart to get up and work. Even the ant has to work to harvest and provide. Do we? What's our thoughts on work? He goes in through verse 9 through 15 to say, How long wilt thou sleep, O sluggard? When wilt thou arise out of thy sleep? Yet a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall thy poverty come as one that travaileth, and thy want as an armed man. A naughty person, a wicked man, walketh with a froward mouth. He winketh with his eyes, he speaketh with his feet, he teacheth with his fingers. Frowardness is in his heart. He deviseth mischief continually. He soweth discord. Therefore shall his calamity come suddenly. Suddenly shall he be broken without remedy. How long will thou sleep? That's a sharp comment. Solomon gives this cascade of issues that happens when we become lazy. Men, are we willing to work? Are we willing to do what God has commanded us to do? Paul gives us a similar line of thinking in the book of 2 Thessalonians in chapter 3. 
He says this to the church at Thessalonica. He says, for yourselves know how you ought to follow us. For we behave not ourselves disorderly among you. Neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail night and day, that we might not be chargeable to any of you. Not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an example unto you to follow us. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, walking not at all, but are busybodies. Now then that are such, we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. Paul's giving us a detailed rationale for their behavior while in ministry in Thessalonica. That's the context of this passage. He's reminding them of the fact that Paul labored day and night so that they wouldn't be chargeable or indebted to any of the people at Thessalonica. Now, there are passages that teach us that if a man is devoted to the spread of the gospel, that by the gospel he should live. But I want you to notice what Paul says in verse 9. He says, we worked not because we didn't have the right to be funded, because Paul the apostle absolutely had the right to receive funds from the church at Thessalonica. But in contrast, he worked and he toiled day and night so that they would be an example to the believers at Thessalonica. That if a man shouldn't work, neither should he eat. You know what an incredible motivator for someone who's lazy is? Someone who's slothful? Hunger. Hunger is an incredible motivator. And God said if a man isn't willing to work then he shouldn't eat. Now you may be sitting there, you know, thinking, Ethan, is this really that serious? Does this really matter that much? Paul says this in 1 Timothy 5 and 8, But if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Man, if we aren't willing to work for our own, and if we aren't willing to provide for our families, if we aren't willing to put forth the effort and give them the things that they need, Notice not the things that they want, but the things that they need. Paul says we have denied the faith and are worse than an infidel. I would hate to be in that boat. We've got to be willing to work. We've got to be willing to work with the right focus. Working is unto Christ and not unto men. We honor God with our work. We honor and submit to God through our labor. And that brings us to a point that's a tad more touchy. How? Are we working? Brethren, just like Brad talked about last week, I can show up to this building three times a week and not be present. And I can show up to my job every day, go through the motions and give about 10% effort. And in neither one of those situations am I truly bringing honor to God. Being a man who loves and is committed to God honoring labor is more than just showing up to the job site. It's more than accomplishing tasks. It's about our mindset, and it's about integrity. I can go to work every single day, and I can still be lazy. I can accomplish every single task on my to-do list, and I can still be slothful. Young people here, I can go to school every day and still be lazy. That was me in high school. I found out early on that by seeing something one time that it was going to stick and I could remember it, and now I can make good grades without even having to try. 
I would show up junior and senior year. I remember to AP calculus. I would have homework, and I would do it five minutes before I walked into the class, go make a 98 on the test, go home, and wouldn't even touch my backpack once I left the school. And you know what that mindset contributes to? Slothfulness. Because you find out real quick that's not going to fly at Texas A&M. They got classes for those type of people. But it made me lazy. And we can be lazy in school, and that's not honoring to God. And it's not biblical manhood. How much effort are we putting into our daily task? Are we working to do the bare minimum, or are we working to serve God? Are we making jobs last longer than they should, or are we working to honor God? I, fortunately enough, have chosen a career in which I can't come to work and do the bare minimum. If I show up and don't do my job, people die. If I don't give certain things, people die. If I don't do my job 100% correct, people die, sometimes in minutes. But that's not always the case for every career. Sometimes we have careers in which cutting corners is pretty easy. Sometimes I can cut corners and my boss is never going to find out. But you know who knows? God does. It's about integrity and it's about honesty and it's about working for God. Young ladies here this morning, maybe you're in a relationship with a young man. Maybe you're seriously considering whether or not he's husband material. I want you to ask yourself a question. How does he view work? Does he constantly come over and complain about everything that went wrong? Does he find excuses to not go to work? Does he do as little as possible just to get by? These are things we need to be thinking about before we enter into a marriage with a young man. Things we need to be considering before we ever even get involved. How does he view labor? Because if he doesn't have integrity in the workplace, is he going to have integrity and fidelity in your marriage? If he isn't willing to work hard for himself and for God, is he going to be willing to work hard for your kids or for your grandkids? And if he has no ambition in the workplace, will he be able to generate ambition for God and for the church? These are questions that we need to consider not only as a young woman, but also as a young man. Someone who has the responsibility or will have the responsibility to provide. God is looking for men who are willing to stand up and lead. Who are willing to stand up and perform God-honoring labor, not only for myself, not only for my family, but he's looking for men who will stand up and serve God. Biblical manhood is committed, devoted to God-honoring labor. Pick back up in Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 16. The Bible says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Point number two this morning, a biblical man is committed to the law of God. Biblical manhood is about being committed to God and to his law. Now, I know some of us are sitting there thinking, well, hold on now. The law didn't come about till Moses and the Ten Commandments. How can Adam be committed to God's law when there is no law? Read with me again. Thou shalt not eat of it. That sounds like a law to me. Be fruitful and multiply. That sounds like a law to me. These are laws from God that Adam is to follow, but not the laws we often refer to delivered to Moses at Mount Sinai. But man had law from God in the midst of a perfect environment and a perfect situation, and Adam was committed to it. 
until he wasn't which is the fall that we've referenced a few times this morning. But remember, we're talking about the dispensation prior to the fall. Manhood in complete perfection is committed to the law of God. Committed to the law of God. Are you committed to the law of God this morning? This really goes for everybody. We're focused on the men, but are you committed to the law of God? Now, what does that look like? What do I mean by committed to the law of God? Well, let's take something basic, the most recognizable form of God's law throughout the world, meaning commandments from uh, from God. I want you in your head this morning to name all ten commandments. Name all ten commandments in your head. Some of us may be having some trouble with that one. The most basic part of God's law, the ten commandments. Statistics show that 74% of Americans can name all three stooges, Moe, Larry, and Curly. 35% of Americans can recall all six kids from the Brady Bunch. And 25% of Americans can name perfectly the seven ingredients of a McDonald's Big Mac. But only 14% can accurately name the Ten Commandments. It's a sad statistic. To be committed to God's law, we have to at least know what the law is. And this morning, we're not talking about just simply knowing what God's law says. We aren't talking about trivia questions, Bible trivia. We're talking about living lives that follow God's law. Young ladies, ladies in search of a husband, we aren't talking about whether or not we know who God is. If he doesn't know the law of God, that shouldn't even be a question. That's in a whole other ballpark there. Bible teaches us don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Marriage is off the table until he at least knows the law of God. But we're talking about being committed to the law of God this morning. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be committed to the law of God? To be wholeheartedly, absolutely devoted to God's law. Turn with me to the book of Daniel in chapter 3. I want to read a passage out of the book of Daniel this morning. Daniel chapter 3 and verse 15. Daniel chapter 3 verse 15 says, Now if ye be ready, that at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, heart, sackbut, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the image which I have made. But if ye worship not, you shall be cast the same hour into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not... Be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Then was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury, and the form of his visage was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore he spake, and commanded that they should heat the furnace one seven times more than it was wont to be heated. And he commanded the most mighty men that were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace." Then these men were bound in their coats, their hosen, and their hats, and their other garments, and were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's commandment was urgent and the furnace exceeding hot, the flame of the fire slew those men that took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. You know, following God and being committed to God is real easy when things are going our way, isn't it? Being committed to God is easy when things aren't in our face. But what happens when they are? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are charged with this commandment from Nebuchadnezzar to fall down and worship what scholars have said is a 90-foot-tall golden statue that he built. And the king places everyone underneath his kingdom on this charge, says to worship that image, but these three men decide we're going to follow God. And I want us to understand a few points from this dialogue between Nebuchadnezzar and these three men. Number one, this decree comes out that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego must disobey God's law. And so these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, now have a choice to make. A line has been drawn in the sand. I think of Joshua staying there giving a speech, choose you whom you're going to serve. That's what's going on here. Remember the Ten Commandments from earlier. One of those says you shouldn't take unto you any graven image. Well, this is a graven image. You shall have no other gods before me. Look at what verse 15 says. Worship the image which I have created. And so these men make the choice that they're first going to commit to God. They're going to serve God. That's the first thing. Point number two, look at the end of verse 15. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are taunted. They're made fun of. I picture Nebuchadnezzar sitting there on his throne saying, Who's going to deliver you out of my hands? Who's it going to be? Who's coming to save you? That furnace is getting real hot over there. Who's going to come get you? That's the picture that's represented. And I want you to notice their response. You know, oftentimes we look at situations in our lives, we look at situations in which our commitment to Christ is being tried, and we read verses like Philippians 4.13 and say, all things are possible with Christ. He's going to pull me from that fire. We look at Romans chapter 8 and say, I'm more than a conqueror, so I'll be just fine because God's going to save me. But what if the answer is no? Where's our faith then? Where's our commitment? When we pray night after night after night after night for our spouse to be healed, you beg God for mercy, you beg God for healing. You know the fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. So we keep on praying, keep on praying. We keep the hope. And in the end, the answer is no. Where's our commitment to God? Where is it then? What we often forget is the context of those passages. Paul says in Philippians 4 and 12 that I know how to abound, but I also know how to suffer. I know how to be full, but I also know how to be hungry, so I can do all things. Paul says in Romans 8 that it doesn't matter if he's in persecution or peril or sword, that he's more than a conqueror. He isn't saying God's going to deliver me every single time. He says it doesn't matter what the outcome is because God's on my side. That's what he's saying. And now look at verse 17 of Daniel chapter 3. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. The God whom we serve is able. The God that we serve is capable of the impossible. Recognize what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are saying. They aren't saying, I'm not going to serve you because God's not going to let me burn. 
I'm choosing to go into that fire because God's going to come down, destroy you, and I'm not going to be touched. That's not what they're saying at all. Their answer is, I serve a God who can deliver me from that fire. He's able to deliver me from that fire. But even if the answer is no, even if I get burned up in the fire, I'm still not serving yours. Fully committed to the law of God. Fully devoted and trusting in God's will. That's what this is. Point number three from the text. Look at verse 22. After they made these statements that I I serve a God who's able. I serve a God who can. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are marched up to the flame. And that flame is so hot that the very men who are simply taking them to the fire are burned up. It burns them up right in front of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know, it's a great thing to be verbally committed to God. It's a great thing to tell people that I'm committed to God, but do my actions prove it? When rubber meets the road, where is our commitment? It's the saying, everybody wants the lights till the lights come on, right? Everyone says they're committed to God, committed to God's law until somebody puts that statement to the test. And for most of us here, I pray that this bad of persecution never happens, but we deal with much smaller commitment issues on a daily basis, don't we? When I'm too tired to get up and come to services, my commitment is tested. When it's my turn to speak and I have to decide how much effort I'm going to put into that sermon, my commitment is now tested. A biblical man stands for the law of God. A biblical man is committed to the law of God. Biblical manhood says, I serve a God who can deliver me, but even if he doesn't, I'm not going to stand for that. Ladies here in search of your future husband, what is his commitment to God? When your kids have a question that's difficult to answer, difficult to talk about, the answer your husband gives will leave an impact on those children, good or bad. Does he know the law of God? Is he committed to the law of God? Because biblical manhood is committed to God's law. Pick back up with me in the book of Genesis in chapter 2. Verse 18 says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found and help meet for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Point number three this morning, a biblical man is committed to God's plan for the family and his institution of marriage. Culture today teaches young men to avoid marriage like it's the black plague. We teach that we need to avoid marriage for as long as possible. I was married at 23. My parents were 19. And I cannot tell you the number of times that I heard, you are so young. You have so much time left ahead of you. You're barely out of college. And I want you to know the majority of these these statements came from people inside the church. 
Why are you getting married now? There's so much you haven't done. There's so much stuff you haven't seen. You have your entire life ahead of you. To which my response was, I do. And I'm looking at her. Let me tell you what society is teaching young men in today's world. They're teaching young men to sow your wild oats, enjoy life to the absolute fullest extent, use up all of your being to go and do and see, suck all the joy out of life, and then when you've gotten all that joy out, go find some woman and give her the leftovers. That's what society is teaching young men today. That's how society teaches young men to act and young men to think. We were taught to in some points like there was a book out of the Bible that we hadn't read yet. Something that shows you you've got to have X amount of money in the account or you've got to be out of college for this many years. You've got to have this many years in your career. Brother, in my Bible says he who finds a wife finds a good thing. But it's not our fault. Once again, we have been lied to. We have been bamboozled. We've been taught to put everything else in our lives ahead of our marriage and ahead of our family. That's what society teaches. So let's jump into the text this morning. A few things I want to recognize out of Genesis chapter 2. Number one, God says in verse 18 that it is not good for a man to be alone. It is not good. The dispensation that we've been focused on this morning in the midst of perfection in the garden is shortly after the period of creation. And I want you to grasp the magnitude of this statement here. Six days of creation, six days, the exact same pattern over and over again. Day one, let there be, then there was, it was good. Day two, let there be, then there was, it was good. Day three, day four, day five, day six, let there be, then there was, it was good. He creates the heavens, let there be, then there was, it was good. He creates land, let there be, then there was, it was good. Then God looks on Adam, and for the first time in creation, let there be, then there was, it is not good. When a man doesn't have a woman. Now does that mean that every man and every woman has to be married or it's not good? Certainly not. Especially when discussing the totality of scripture. But I would argue to the bottom of the barrel this morning that marriage is by far the preferred position in the totality of scripture. And because of that, every young man here, every man here should be preparing to be a husband and a father someday. And we'll talk about it next time, but every woman here should be preparing to be a wife and a mother someday. And that's not a statement that's very popular in today's world. But I want to ask you a question this morning. In relation to godliness and the fruits of the Spirit, things that God calls a Christian man to be, is there a standard that's different for a married man versus an unmarried man? Sure, there's, there's things in relation to my marriage that are different that a single man doesn't have. But as it comes to those things, is there any difference? I don't believe there is. So is it not a good thing to strive to be a Christian man who is qualified to enter the marriage covenant? But even if I never get married, am I still called to be committed to God's plan for the family? Yes, we are. As a child, Ephesians 6 teaches us to obey our mother and father. The fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. When does that stop? It doesn't. If I'm 60 years old and I've never been married, my parents have passed. A biblical man honors his father and mother, committed to the family unit. Picking back up in Genesis chapter 2, why was it not good for a man to be alone? Well, think of what God said when he created man. 
let us. The us there, the plural nature of that phrase, recognizes that it's not just God the Father there at creations. In fact, Colossians touches on that further. It was the Godhead three in perfect unity saying, let us make man in our image. So when the Godhead three looks down on Adam, who's alone in the garden, the Godhead three recognizes what? That it isn't good for man to be alone. He's made in the image of the Godhead. He has the same characteristics, the same traits, the same emotions, the same desire to feel connected and to feel loved. So God says it is not good for him to be alone. So God creates the beast of the field, the flying animals, and he tells Adam to name them. You want to talk about a challenge. Name all the animals that I just created. Can you imagine the mind of Adam? You know, two winged flying things only going to get you so far. Four-legged walking creature with two eyes is only going to get you so far. There's a whole lot of those. Can you imagine the intelligence of a man who is in the garden in perfection with God? And yet verse 20 tells us that after he names all those animals and he's surrounded by all these beasts, there is not a help meet for him. My mom loves cats. <laughs> loves cats. You walk up to her house, she's got one named Sparta. It's a funny name. Basically, he bit me while we were at the shelter picking him out, so we called him Sparta. Uh, but about six more neighborhood cats magically show up to her doorstep. You can only imagine why they're showing up to her doorstep. But she loves those cats. One of them lays in her bed, even if she's not there. But despite how much she loves those cats, they are not a suitable helpmeet. And Adam finds out the same thing. Number two, look at verse 23. Adam says, she is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. We then see that a man leaves his father and mother. He shall cling unto his wife and the two become one flesh. Biblical manhood is committed to executing God's plan for the family unit. It is committed to the institution of marriage designed and set up by God. Notice Adam's response. God delivers him this helpmeet in Eve. And he says, she is now bone of my bones and she is flesh of my flesh. I will leave and I will cling unto her. Brethren, that's God's plan for the family unit. And that's God's plan for the institution of marriage that we cling to our spouse. And I want to read you the fruition of what this situation of the garden, what this creation of Eve from Adam in the midst of perfection brings forward into the law of Christ in today's time. Trace this with me in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22. It says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he's the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify it and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth it and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church." For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. 
The same idea of flesh of my flesh is brought forward under the Old Covenant and continues under the law of Christ, that two shall be joined as one flesh. Men here this morning, do you love your wife as if she's your own flesh? Do you talk to her with the same love and the same kindness and the same affection that you would want her talking to you with? In today's society, like we've talked on a few times, we have been lied to and we've been sold a bill of goods. It's rare to see a man open a car door for his wife. It's rare to see a man pull out a table for his wife at the table. The same chivalry that was around in the 50s and 60s are gone. Why? Because we have been lied to. It's almost seen as condescending for a man to open a door for a woman because it shows that they can't do it themselves in today's society. And it's lies like these that have degraded and perverted the biblical godly institution of marriage that was set up all the way back in the garden. I want us to understand this morning that marriage is optional. That's not something we hear from the pulpit very often. But it is 100% optional, and because it's optional, it is 100% our choice. Like we said earlier, I'd argue it's the preferred position, but it is optional. And because of that fact, people look at marriage as if it's almost disconnected from God. We put, put our relationship with Christ and our Christian lives over here in this corner, and then we take our family and our marriage and we put it over there in that corner. We cannot do that. We don't have the right to do that. We talked a minute ago about how marriage is optional, and if it's optional, then I must choose to enter into it. And if I choose to enter into the marriage covenant, an institution that God created, I cannot pick and choose how I want that institution to work. I cannot pick and choose which parts of God's law that I want to follow and which parts don't really matter to me. That's not how it works. I can't say, well, God, I'm really on board with a few things. I really like the idea of my wife not seeking her own. I really like the idea of her submission and me being the head of the house. But this whole nourish and cherish thing... I don't know about that one. It's a little too much commitment for me, right? Today's world teaches us to get married because of the benefits, but they don't teach us the consequences. When I enter into that covenant and that institution, I'm now responsible for actions and a whole new set of laws that I wasn't prior to it. I have a duty to be a man. I have a duty to be a husband. And I have a duty to be a father. And I'm accountable to someone far greater than my spouse. That accountability lies with my God. We do not have a choice on whether or not we're going to be a godly husband. We don't have a choice on whether or not we're going to be a godly father. Our God commands it, he demands it, and our God expects it, plain and simple. When we start to understand that when we fail, we fail someone greater than our spouse, greater than our kids, we can understand the importance of biblical manhood. When I choose not to love my wife, I'm hurting more than just Bailey. When I choose not to be patient with her, I'm hurting more than her. I'm sinning against my God. When I choose not to seek my own, I'm not hurting her. I'm sinning against God. My actions that I take in my marriage are not just between me and my wife like society wants to tell us. They're between us and they're between God as well. And because of that, it is absolutely vital that a biblical man is devoted to God's plan for the family and God's institution of marriage. Young ladies here this morning, there's a lot to consider when we talk about choosing the right man. 
in the realm of being committed to God's plan for the family. And one of the things that I struggled with while putting this sermon together was what if a young lady is evaluating whether or not her to-be husband will be committed to her marriage and committed to the family unit? How do I know that that man who's never been in that relationship will be committed to it when he's never been in the situation before? And I struggled to answer that question in relation to our message, but I believe I have an answer. Look at his relationship with his parents. Does he honor his parents? If he's 15, 16, 17 years old, does he obey his parents? Does he respect them? Does he take care of his mother? Does he take care of his younger siblings? How committed is he to the family unit that he is in right now? Is he committed in the family unit that he's in to serving God? That's the question that's on the table. Is he committed to God's plan for the family and God's plan for the institution of marriage because biblical manhood demands that he is? This morning we've discussed three points about biblical manhood, three things in which a biblical man is committed to. And if you're here this morning, if you're a man here this morning who is devoted and committed to God-honoring labor, a man who's committed wholeheartedly to God's law, a man who is committed to God's plan for the family and the institution of marriage, I'd ask you this morning to stand up. If you are committed to those three things, I'd ask you to stand up. If you're a young man here this morning who's developing these traits, who's learning what biblical manhood is, I'd ask you as well to stand up. I want you to look around the room for a second. If you're a young man here this morning who's been lied to, a young man who's been sold a facet of the truth about what being a man is all about, a young man who's been told the ball field, the bedroom, and the billfold are all that matters, I want you to take a look around the room this morning. What you'll see is men who are committed to God, committed to his law, committed to his labor, and committed to his plan for the family. I urge you to seek these men out. Ask them what it means day in and day out to be a laborer for God. Day in and day out to commit to God in a broken society. To commit to God's plan for the family when all the world wants to do is slam that plan to the ground. Ladies here this morning, especially young ladies, I want you to look around the room as well. These are examples of a man striving to achieve biblical manhood. What it talks like, what it acts like, what it looks like in every single one of these pews. All you have to do is talk to them. Talk to their wives about how they knew they would make good husbands and good fathers. Maybe you're here this morning and you've realized you've been lied to. You've made some mistakes in your walk with Jesus. Maybe you've realized you aren't the man or the woman that God has called you to be. We stand ready to pray for you, ready to lift you up and bear any burdens that you might have. Or maybe you've realized this morning that you don't even know God's law. You haven't entered into relationship with him. This morning is the perfect opportunity to change that. Don't leave here this morning without your salvation being secure. If we can help you in any way, please come as we stand and as we sing.